I love wine, but sometimes it can get really expensive, which is why I'm so excited that today's episode is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines. If you don't know, they're a Napa-based online wine shop with a twist. They offer just one hand-picked wine per day until it sells out, which is often in hours. So new day, new wine, always at incredible prices. We're talking 30 to 70% off retail. And the best part is that there's no subscriptions, no fees, and no minimum purchase. Just a daily email with a really great wine. They're offering Datable listeners 10% off your first order with code Datable. And now is such a great time to join as their marathon sale is coming up on March 28th and 29th. They flip that one-day rule on its head and offer back-to-back deals, which means that wines are only up on the site for a couple minutes at a time and shipping is 100% free. They send us a mini marathon package of some of their favorites and let me tell you, they were delicious. Sign up at lastbottlewines.com and use the code DATABLE and find out why Last Bottle is the most fun way to discover and buy amazing wine. We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. The Dateable Podcast is an insider's look into modern dating that the Huffington Post calls one of the top 10 podcasts about love and sex. On each episode, we'll talk to real daters about everything from sex parties to sex droughts, date fails to diaper fetishes, and first moves to first loves. I'm your host, Yue Xu, former dating coach turned dating sociologist. You'll also hear from my co-host and producer, Julie Kraftchik, as we explore this crazy dateable world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Dateable, a show all about modern dating. Ah, season 10! Oh my god. It's going to be epic. (laughs) I can't believe we made it to double digits. I can't believe we started season one just on a whim with our (laughs) friends, and now we're on season 10. With people who are now our new friends, but yeah. you know, they weren't our friends to begin with. No. So and great. I, it's just, it's so crazy that we've been at it for like four solid years. It's got, I gotta say, this is one of my most um, 
committed relationships I've ever been in, Julie. <laughs> and even though we joke about us being like lesbian lovers, I really feel like this is a whole new level of relationship that oh, I yeah. haven't had before. I mean, people say like you really should date like anyone that becomes a business partner. Yeah. Because that's... it's like ends up being like a marriage. And I think for anybody who's curious about how we work, I think it's we've both evolved so much oh. in the last 10 seasons almost five years that I, I don't even recognize us anymore from the, you know, from the beginning oh my to now. I was like re-listening to a couple <laughs> old ones and it it's actually quite amazing and they're great in different ways. Like I think there was something really nice, but our episodes were like 20 minutes. They were very short mm-hmm. and they were very conversational, which was fun. And we've heard a lot of people loving that, but mm-hmm. we've just gotten much deeper over the years. And I guess in the beginning, I never thought about what I would take away from Dateable. I was, no. I really thought we were just going to talk about funny dating stories and maybe discuss dating in different cities. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize how narrow-minded I was in the beginning. No. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. But it's nice to have some self-awareness around it. Totally. And I think that actually is what has kept us going. People always are like, are you going to run out of material? Never. And it's like, there's always something new with modern dating. I wish you could see our inbox because every day there's something new. I actually feel bad like that we can't reply to as many people because it's just, yeah, there's so many stories out there. And that's why in season 10, we want to just bring you more. We want this Mm -hmm. to be an epic season. And we want this to be a very memorable season because, you know, hitting double digits, it's a big deal. So (laughs) in the last few months, we had a few first times for everything. We had a first time live in-person shows in San Francisco and Phoenix. Cherry pop. (laughs) We did a few first streaming live shows. That's yeah. different than Facebook Live, but we'll keep doing more of those. And we you can really actually like catch them on Facebook Live, yeah. too, if you miss them. But we had some really good ones because we used a platform called Get Vocal where you could actually have listeners mic up mm-hmm. and join the conversation. So super fun to just have fans and listeners that we don't know at all just be on the video screen with us. And we're going to bring all that equipment to South by Southwest oh, with yeah. us again this year. One of our favorite con- like I think it's my favorite oh, thing in the whole wide world. Like, I did not know what I was getting into last year because you were like, we mm-hmm. got to go. It's the best. And I'm like, eh, I could kind of go either way. And then this year, I'm like, are let's we going? Go. Are we yeah, going? let's go. Let's stay the entire time. <laughs> yeah, we're maximizing our time this year. We're bringing friends. Like, yeah. we're bringing our producer. We're bringing some other people. So, yeah. And if you are going to be in Austin at the same time, hit us up. Let's meet up. Maybe mm-hmm. we do a Facebook Live together, record a podcast episode. You never know. Anything could happen at South By. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't checked out the decorator oh, video this is, yet, this is, I think, UA's head. Project that she six months. (laughs) You just felt so strongly about this. We can give a little background of how this kind of evolved, maybe for people. Yeah, I guess we were at a comedy. You and I were at a comedy show, and this comedian was talking about dick pics and how boring they were. And and I was at a, a bachelorette party earlier last year. And I was talking about this this um, comedian, and someone was like, oh my gosh, there needs to be like a Snapchat filter <laughs> app for dick pics, where you can put all kinds of different decorations on a dick, and we'll call it Decorator. So boom, I came back, and I told Julie, and Julie's like, let's run with it. We're going to do oh, it. Well, I was like, let's make a fake promo video and not build that app. 
But if anybody's interested in building that app with us, because my coworker is so convinced we're going to be billionaires if we build that app. If you're, if you want to be our business partner in that, also hit us up. We, maybe Ask Men will do it. We want to thank Ask Men for citing us as one of the best sex and dating podcasts to up your game in 2020. I personally, it makes me so happy when we're on these lists, mm-hmm. just because. I know it just makes it feel real. It's like but, validation. Yeah, so. and, it, and we're on the same list as Esther Perel and Dan Savage. Yeah. And that makes me feel oh good. Oh my God, yeah. Do they know that they're on the same list as us though? Uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. not. Well, that's our dream. So hopefully this season we'll have one of them on this podcast. Oh, maybe we do. Maybe we're hiding some secrets. <laughs> also, this year, like I said, we want to do bring you more. So it's more episodes, more live shows. We have more sponsors. Thanks, sponsors, for keeping us alive. And we have dateable swag that you oh, can purchase yep. and show off to all your friends. Yeah, so we'll keep you updated as, as that come out. But we have a few ideas in the pipeline that are going to be really good. And Julie, speaking of more, we are so excited to now be part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network. Yes. So we had Frolic Media come to us and say, hey, like we're a podcast network and we've also been um, a book network Mm -hmm. that really focuses on the romance and dating and relationship space. So we talked to them. We just thought it was a really great fit for us. And we're really excited to see what the share brings with them. And it just also is a great community for us to be part of. And yeah. we're so excited to bring some of the content they already have on their network to you all yep. that you might find interesting. And also, you know, uh, t- speaking of validation, if you <laughs> love us as much as we love you, can you please just leave us a review or tell a friend about Datable? Because this is how we can keep on bringing you the content that you love. Yeah, that is... I think the only real ask we have of you. And yeah. to keep listening yourself. But. Yeah. It's a win-win situation. Trust us. There's no gimmick here. So enough of this because we're ready for our first episode. Oh, my God. It's so good. We have, so good. We have a, a repeat guest yeah. back. Her name is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. If you remember, she was on a previous episode called Marriage 101. She teaches one of the most popular classes at Northwestern University. It's waitlisted every semester. Oh, yeah. Julie's cousin knows. Yeah, right. my co- she didn't actually. She wasn't in it, but her friends were. Yeah, but she also knows. Oh, yeah. She knows that it's super popular. Oh yeah, because she went to Northwestern. Yeah. Yes, and so this episode we have her back because she um, has come out of, with a new book, and she talks about how to own your sexuality, whether you have a partner or not. Yeah, that's a key phrase. Yeah, and I think it's uh, just like when she. Well, when her publicist came to us again, first of all, we just love the episode Marriage One Hundred and One. I think for both of us. People are always like, oh, you guys are dating experts. And we definitely know a lot about dating relationships because we've talked to so many people. But I personally don't believe anyone is like an expert. No. Like we're we're learning every day. And I personally think for me, Marriage 101 was probably one of the ones I learned the oh, most man. from. Because like her, the knowledge that she was like, every relationship has conflict. I think I personally took... Yeah, to heart, because I think we're always looking for the perfect relationship and something that's easy and all that. And it shouldn't be so hard, but also like you're you have to work at it, too. And the fact that her class is one of the most popular classes for undergrads at Northwestern speaks so much about what is happening in our culture today. Right. Back to like 18, 19, 20-year-olds are thinking about marriage and how to have successful relationships. When we keep shitting on younger generations, I think we just have to step back and say, maybe the young people have figured it out. Yeah. They're learning. I think when her publicist came to us again for this episode, this whole notion of sex, it's like 
we all know about sex, obviously, but like, how do you describe what you even like? Mm-hmm. It's so, I think it's so hard. It's like, obviously love sex, but I can't put into words a lot of the stuff. Right. Or people feel like they have to love sex because it's supposed to give you pleasure. Yeah. But I also know people who struggle with loving sex. Right. Have, and then you feel bad. And yeah. Then, yeah. And I think it's like, we touch on this in the episode, but what people, how people learn about sex, it's sex ed, which I mean, it's just don't have sex. Like I always think of, the, mm-hmm. I always think of Mean Girls, where it's like you will have, you will die. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and like that actually is like sex ed. It's like it's just was bad about sex. And then mm-hmm. porn, like yeah, yeah. I think I heard a stat actually that boys that are t- uh, eight to twelve are using porn exclusively to learn about sex. Ew. I know. That's sad. It is, because then it also skews what's real Yeah. in the actual bedroom. And there was some other stat, and I'm kind of butchering these stats, but there was something about, like, how most men uh, masturbate to porn. And, like, a lot mm. of men were, like, don't, haven't masturbated without porn since they were, like, 12. And these are, like, 40-year-old men now. And it just completely distorts sexuality for you and your partner. So now's a good time to ask you, our listener... How did you first hear about sex or learn about sex? And the last time you masturbated, what was the material that you masturbated to? Just two questions to keep in mind (laughs) as we play our first episode with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I love repeat guests. Don't oh, you? yes. Yes. Especially for our season opener. I don't love repeat <laughs> ex-boyfriends, but I love repeat <laughs> guests because it's worth having a guest on for the second time. And we've got Dr. Alexandra Solomon on with us again. We talked about Marriage 101 last time she was on our show. And this time we're going to be talking about sex. So she just released a new book called Taking Sexy Back. It came out February 2nd. And we are about to embark on this journey of how to talk about sex. I think in our culture, we show sex, we fantasize about sex, but we don't actually talk about it. Yeah. And there's a lot of like shame in just from an early age, things about sex that you've been taught. And I think what I really loved about your book, Alexandra, and we're obviously going to dive a lot more in with you is just how do we take what we've learned and really make it work for us current day? Hi, Alexandra. <laughs> how are you? It's so- Good to be back with both of you. Thank you for joining us. She lives in Chicago, originally from Detroit. She's in her mid-40s and married. So I'm just going to quickly go over who she is in case you missed the first episode we had with her. She's a professor and licensed clinical psychologist who has been specializing in sex, love, and intimate relationships for over 20 years. She does individual and couples therapy and teaches a globally recognized undergraduate relationship course at Northwestern University called Marriage 101. And that's exactly how we found her in the first place. (laughs) She's also an author of the book, Loving Bravely, and now Taking Sexy Back, which came out February 2nd. So again, we're here to talk about taking sexy back and how to own your sexuality and create the relationships you want. So first off, what is, besides Justin Timberlake, (laughs) that is totally what I thought of too. (laughs) Who's taking sexy back, which I listened to that song like six times this morning and I was like, what, what does that even mean? That needs to be your anthem, Dr. (laughs) Alexandra. (laughs) What is taking your sexy back? What does that mean to you? 
So the idea here that we're, what we're doing in this book is that, you know, women are very highly sexualized. We are given a lot of messages as we're growing up about who we should be and how we should be. And media highly sexualizes women, but being sexualized is very different than being sexual. And so this book is about really a supportive journey from an, what I call an outside in experience of your sexuality, which is sort of like, who everyone has told you you should be or you need to be, moving towards an inside out like cultivation of, okay, what the hell? What is my sexuality? Who is this like sexual self that I, you know, I have? It's been part of, it's part of all of us. It's part of being human is to um, have this aspect of self. Um, But it's not one that we're really encouraged to define for ourselves or cultivate as something that is uniquely ours to understand and then to figure out how to share. To own your own sexuality is such an interesting concept Mm -hmm. to me because I've always grown up with the idea that the media owns my sexuality. Mm. The media dictates Mm -hmm. what I should find pleasurable, what an orgasm is. And I never thought about going inwards, exploring what my sexuality is. So was there anything in particular for you that inspired you to write this book? Right. I think it's true. Like it's that's a really interesting place for for a woman to start kind of like her exploration of like who am I as a sexual being is a really interesting place to start. It's like who owns my sexuality? I think sometimes it feels like it belongs to the church mm. or to the family, right? Sort of like, you know, your family's honor oftentimes is sort of seen as a, a woman's sec, you know, sexuality sort of belongs to the family system to be given away. Like there's all these kinds of ways in which it belongs to everybody but you. It's no coincidence that women oftentimes feel really disconnected from this part of themselves because we really haven't had like a whole lot of science like to understand women's sexuality. So a lot of the inspiration here was basically the fact that I year after year was having conversations with my students, both my college students and my graduate students about sex and having, you know, woman after woman say to me, like, I don't really ever think about my pleasure. I don't really ever consider like, what do I want or need? Or people just saying, coming up to me after lecture and being like, I've not heard sex talked about in this way. The only way I've ever heard sex talked about is like, don't do it. It's sinful. It's dangerous. It's bad. It's dirty. And this is kind of a new paradigm. Trying to figure out how can we talk about sex that is neither like a taboo at one extreme or as you're saying, like the sort of titillating like sex as something that is selling products or Mm. sex as something that is like, you know, leading to downloads of more and more and more pornography. Like it's sort of like these extremes of taboo and titillation. So do you think porn gives like men unrealistic expectations of like how to please and then women unrealistic expectations like of what they should be doing to please? I think that's for sure a risk. Yes. I, so when I talk about pornography, like with my students, for example, I will encourage people to have experiences of masturbating without pornography. I think there can be like a time and a space for using erotic materials. Like they can sort of can be permission giving. I think there's really beautiful people who are creating really feminist, you know, pornography where, where you feel like you're accessing something that was created with care and integrity, where performers are paid well, where storylines are really supportive of the kinds of things that research has shown women actually like, you know? So it's not that we can like paint all of porn with like one 
broad brush. But yes, I think that is for sure the risk. Like I've heard, um, and I'm sure you guys hear far more stories than I do about just stories where people go to bed together for the first time and they're like trying to kind of recreate a porn scene and that mm-hmm. porn is pretend it's, it's fantasy. And I think that I love how we have porn performers now who are saying, you know, who are kind of becoming like public health, you know, specialists in a way and saying like, you guys stop, (laughs) this isn't what real life lovemaking looks like. Like stop trying to do in your own bedrooms, what I'm doing on screen. I am making fantasy storylines. Yeah. It's entertainment, right? (laughs) It's entertainment. Yeah. What do you think? What do you guys think about that? Do you think it is shaping how people are actually showing up in the bedroom? I don't even think people show up in the bedroom anymore. I think people come to the bedroom and just expect, oh, we're going to have sex and that that it's going to be great and we're going to enjoy it. But I don't think people know how to deliver pleasure and Mm -hmm. how to even define what pleasure is for themselves. I have a friend who had her first sexual experience in her late 20s recently, and she said it was exactly how I did not expect sex to go. She said it was so opposite of what she had seen in porn, what she had heard from friends, what she heard her neighbors doing late at night, <laughs> that she she thought she was an anomaly. She yeah. said, I didn't scream at the top of my lungs. I didn't orgasm. And also, I didn't go down on him because I didn't know what, what I was supposed to do when I was down there. So she had a lot of these ex- experiences at I guess, a later age that she had no idea how she was even supposed to show up for her partner. I think that's the problem, though, is like when you feel like you should be doing something. I think it goes beyond porn. Like I think it's just media in general and just what you've learned through talking to friends and like hearing their stories. And like if you feel like you're different, that's Mm -hmm. when things get problematic. Absolutely. And I think for me personally, I thought what was really interesting about your book is you actually put a lot of like names to feelings. And I think a lot of times we can't really describe how we view our own sexual selves. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, I have sex, but I can't really explain like what I'm doing, yeah. how I'm feeling. Like, it's just <clears throat> a little bit of an enigma in a way. There's no vocabulary other yeah. than faster and harder. Yeah. That's about it. Exactly. (laughs) And like even some of the stuff in your book I thought was super interesting. Like you were talking about like how some people are just like wired to go at any time where other people Mm -hmm. need to be like more in the mood. And sometimes that causes a lot of like disconnects in relationships too when you and your partner are different, but you don't know how to express it, explain that. And also just we – I had this conversation. I was at CES earlier this year and sex sex tech was huge. And why it was so huge is because – Back in the day, sex products were created by men. Vibrators especially Mm. were created by men that just gives you this vibrating feeling that's consistent (laughs) that is supposed to get you off somehow because men do not understand how the clit works. In fact, women do not understand how the clit works. I just learned how the clip works and how yeah. it's not just a knob that you just keep pressing. It's not mm-hmm. one of those. It's a um, a wishbone shaped um, right. around the knob that that is a clip. That's your entire clip. I did not know yeah. this. It was mind blowing. That's challenging. Is like even seeing images and like seeing that. I still don't really know how it works. Yeah, for me, how, you know? for, for, but in porn, it's just constant pressure on that knob and that's supposed to get you off honestly that doesn't get me off it just makes me want to pee yeah and I think <laughs> <laughs> the part with this like we've talked about it we've both like because i recommended to you the magic wand oh that my I gosh loved. wait okay? alexander do you know what the magic wand is i'm sure she does <laughs> 
I yes, I do. Oh. Tell, but tell me, talk it's to me like about your experience. It's like the most like known vibrator of all times. But it I, is humongous. <laughs> no, yeah. but I think like okay. So one of my friends recommended it to me, and I was like, I used it and I loved it, and it definitely got me off. And then I recommended it to UA, and she's like, it did nothing to me. I'm just going to use mm-hmm. this as like a back scratcher. Oh no, and- I, I actually use it for what it's intended to do, which is a massager. <laughs> I use it for my back. Uh-huh. And I think the reason I bring this up is because everyone's body is just so different. different. And like certain right. things react different ways to them. And I think sometimes like in porn or just again in media, it doesn't have to be just porn. Like if you don't do something or you don't like something, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. And for right. all the people, I'm not just saying men because some women don't know this either. Google the magic wand. Just Google it because this <laughs> mm-hmm. has been the godmother of vibrators yeah. for yeah, a it is. long right. time. Right. This is like what every woman has. And if it came to me as almost this guarantee, you're going to get off if you get the magic wand. And it's aptly named a magic wand. It did <laughs> mm-hmm. nothing for me. And it made me feel like there was something right. wrong with me. Also, I was like, am I supposed to stick this in me? I was so into right. it. I was like, oh, so the first time too. <laughs> ginormous. So I think that's a Uh good segue because I think beyond just that, there's a lot of stories that we've been told. Like, for example, like men Mm -hmm. always want to have sex. Like, Anytime, any day, they're ready to go. And I know, like, a lot of times we have our producer shaking his head right now. <laughs> no. But then also, like, I know I've been with ex boyfriends and such, and they're like, I'm not in the mood. And then you mm-hmm. get, like, insulted because you have this stereotype in your mind. Like, how do we kind of detangle ourselves from some of these stories? Absolutely. Well, what you, I mean, what we're talking about is first step is feeling like you have permission to expand the story. Like this idea that like the magic wand got me off, but not you off. Or the magic wand got me off on Tuesday, but not Thursday. Like just (laughs) treating that, treating any of that as like a data point to be curious about rather than an entire narrative that now dictates the entirety of my sexuality, you know? Mm -hmm. And so with a partner, it's like, you're not in the mood, but you're a man and you're supposed to be in the mood. And if you're a man and you're not in the mood, it must be either you are broken or I am broken. Like who's broken? And that's now where it goes versus hearing that your partner's not in the mood and being curious about it. Okay. So what's going on and what does that stir up in me? Like that's the self-awareness part is like what happens to me when you aren't in the mood and it becomes then it makes so much sense, right? It becomes a story about my worth because I'm a woman, which means I've been told that my value is in how I look in a man's eyes, how desirous I make a man. And if I'm not, quote unquote, making this man desirous, who the hell am I? Like, what's my worth? What's my value? So it's like that little micro interaction of a male partner not in the mood, like is an entire reflection of like the patriarchy in that moment. And that's what I just kept coming back to again and again in the book is how much these really narrow stories about men are, women are, really limit us. And that's, and that's for our LGBTQ plus friends and, and you know, people in our world as well. It's like these stories that just narrow down our sexual selves, which are, in fact, our sexual selves are like really dynamic, unfolding, changing. So whatever you think you have figured out, you got to refigure it out, you know, in this new relationship or now that you're in your thirties or your forties, or your seventies, whatever. So it's like, anyways, that's, that's that it's, everything's bigger than the stupid little thin narrow stories 
that our culture tells us. And on the flip side of that is men feel shame and yeah. uh, they're they're inapt when they are not in the mood and they can't have sex at the drop of a dime because yeah, you know, it, it's like, oh, I'm a man. I'm supposed to want to have sex every second of every day. That makes them feel less of a man if they don't. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, right. there was a definitely an overarching theme of the book of just shame and sex. Like, why do yeah. you think there's so much shame in our culture when it comes to sex? Let's take a pause for mental health and our partner, BetterHelp. Mental health is so important because it's what affects our daily lives, especially when it comes to dating. Now with Valentine's Day right around the corner, it's a holiday that conjures up all sorts of emotions for people, me included. Now with BetterHelp, it is much easier to find online counseling and find an outlet to discuss your journey and check in with yourself. BetterHelp's counselors specialize in depression, relationships, trauma, and many other areas. Everything stays confidential between you and your counselor. With thousands of licensed therapists, you're sure to find one who is the best fit for you. For Dateable listeners only, get 10% off your first month with a discount code DATEABLE. Simply go to betterhelp.com slash dateable. Fill out a quick questionnaire to help assess your needs and get matched with a counselor. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash dateable and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E for 10% off your first month. Now back to the show. This episode is sponsored by Via. We all know there are things that can help set the mood in the bedroom, but did you know a little THC could also do that? Yes, Via has developed a unique blend of pleasure-enhancing cannabinoids, libido-strengthening herbs, and a low dose of THC all into one mind-blowing gummy called High Love. This gummy, wow, it will awaken your senses, increase blood flow, and intensify any sexual experience. I've been pleasantly surprised by the High Love gummies because it is just the right amount of THC. THC for me to have a good time without feeling sleepy. And hey, if THC is not your thing, Via also offers a wide array of other gummies without it. And everything legally ships in 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC plus CBN sleep gummies with our exclusive code DATEABLE at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. Let the gummies work their magic. Head to viahemp.com and use a code DATEABLE to receive 15% off and one free sample of their sleepy dream gummies. That's viahemp.com and use a code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E at checkout. Take your passion and pleasure to a whole new level with high love from Via Hemp. Like, why do yes. you think there's so much shame in our culture when it comes to sex? You know, and, and it really is our culture because when we look at, I mean, lots of parts of the world have this too, but there are, like, I love looking at what's happening, like in the Netherlands, for example, yeah. where sex education, you know, it's part of every, like, parents start talking, parents and teachers start talking to kids about bodies and touch, and it's just woven into the conversation. And my favorite story is there's a museum, like, sort of a science museum where there's a whole area, like the science of sex, and it's, it's designed for, you know, older kids, like young, like preteens and teens, where you go in and there's puppets and you can make the puppets French kiss. There's this oh. huge jar that looks like <laughs> semen and you can like, you know, peer into it. There's oh. different, it's just, it's sort of like, you know, like we don't have that in the U.S. We would never see a large jar of <laughs> faux semen in a museum, but when you when we don't, I mean, and when you look at the data, like the the teen pregnancy rate in the Netherlands is a 
little itty bitty fraction of what it is here in the US. The STI rate in the Netherlands, you know, is like a fraction of what it is here. So it just, it to me shows that when we like take this very puritanical, shame loaded attitude about sex, it just creates the conditions for abuse. It creates the conditions for like, you know, just all the nasty stuff we're trying to avoid happens when we act like we can't talk about this, when we get pearl clutchy, as my as my publicist says. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically what we talked about on that last episode when we had you on, um, where sex education has always been about sex prevention mm-hmm. because it's so taboo to have se- unprotected sex. You're going to get STIs. You're going to get pregnant. But sex education should be about also how to have sex and why we have sex yeah. and why it should be pleasurable. And remember the story I told about my virgin friend who said, I need to just figure out my own vagina right now because nobody ever taught me how to figure it out. So before I actually give out my virginity, yeah. I need to figure out my own shit. And it's it's just fantastic to hear this because there are cultures who are very progressive in the way they see sex and we are seeing the results of that and the benefits. So hopefully we can follow suit. Yeah. And I think that is why there's so much shame because we're taught like, don't have sex and no one wants to ask questions to their parents. They don't want to ask questions to their teachers. So therefore, like they just feel like there's nowhere to go except for the internet. Julie, do you remember how you found out about sex? Well, I don't, I actually remember asking my parents like how I was brought here and they said the stork brought me. I'm not even kidding. So they clearly avoided the top. Clearly. So when did you find out about penises and vaginas? Um, Oh, that's tough. I don't really remember what Mark did, but I think, I mean, sex ed, I do remember that pretty vividly and not, I just remember it as like really bad videos we had to watch. Yeah, and exactly. It was like the men and the women were separated, <laughs> which is also problematic. And I wonder how schools are doing it this day and age because yeah. there's just a lot less about gender and gender ide- identity is much more fluid. I know. But I also like, why did we have to sit in separate rooms? Because I think it well, actually would have been oh. useful to know how the male anatomy worked a bit more. And it would it would just create so much compassion, like opportunities for compassion about, you know, these poor teen guys who get like boners in the middle yeah. of math class and oh, yeah. for, you know, for guys to understand the nature of periods and like what they are. They're not terrifying. They're not foreign. But when we create with we, like we do, like we almost create like contempt across the gender lines, right? About these bodies we don't understand that do things we can't even relate to. And it would just create so much more inclusivity for all of, um, for everybody who doesn't like fit neatly into that mold. Like the fact that 5% of LGBT teens have positive representations in health education, like see LGBT sexuality with positive representations in their sex ed is oh. criminal. Like that is yeah, so sounding. deeply problematic. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the first time like flat out. Like, I do remember, though, people, like, what you were just saying, like, boys getting boners and women, like, getting period. Mm-hmm. Like, ha- I remember, mm-hmm. like, a poor girl, like, got her period on her chair and was, like, the most mortifying oh, man. thing. Yeah. And no one could really explain it. Everyone just laughed in, in both cases. Mm-hmm. In terms of sex, like, I know for me, I don't – I think it was just through, like, friends and, like, camp mm-hmm. and, like, talking to other people. But, like, for me, I was definitely, like, a more of a late bloomer and didn't really have – a ton of sexual experiences in mm. high school because it just wasn't something that I talked about ever with my family. It was like very much a topic that was off limits. What about you? Mm-hmm. I feel like I was probably in fourth or fifth grade and we were on the playground. And this is before I found about found out about 
uh, regular sex, I was taught what a 69 was. And wow. someone drew a picture <laughs> for me on the playground and said, this is what sex is. And that's my first exposure to sex. I was like, this is a very precarious position. Okay, interesting. And then when we went into sex ed, I was actually questioning the teacher. <laughs> I was like, are you sure this is how sex works? That should have been an early sign that you were going to do this podcast. <laughs> Somebody should be facing the other way at this point, is my understanding. <laughs> uh, like, no, 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 no. Let me show you. The Great. face goes here. Oh, my God. I know everything about sex. I'm in fourth grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, English is my second language, oh so I didn't really I under- imagine how you asked. I it. didn't even. Uh, I had no vocabulary to explain what I had seen, but I just kept raising my hand, asking, "Is this is this right?" So mm-hmm. that's actually a really good segue too, because I think even in 2020, we actually did a live show a couple like um in December, and I remember one of the last questions we got from a woman was. Is it okay to sleep with a man on the first date or like the first time? Were you so surprised? I was. Still getting I was a question actually like that? really surprised. And I did want to like bring it up to you too, because I think um, it's worth talking about like, why is there still that stigma in 2020? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, the way that the way we talk about it in the book a little bit is that it's, um, it's like this new, it's like a new kind of sexual revolution, right? So there is like permission now to have sex. But what I really, the question like is really not one that I want her to ask anybody else. It really would be, what would the conditions be that would help me know that I actually really am excited to go to bed with this person, regardless if it's the the first date or the fifth date or the 20th date. Like that's the question, right? She's asking it as an outside in question. Like, can you please give me permission versus a, a more interesting conversation that's about how do I know when I'm really enthusiastic to share, to create an experience with somebody else in this way. That's the, that's the really important, interesting question. And that's revolutionary, right? Revolutionary to be like, what do I want? How do I know? And how do I ask? Because really what I want women to be able to inquire about is like, how do I know if this can be a partner who's really ready to meet me in this space of deep like co-creation and play and you know, taking our time and following sensation, because that's what like when the gal who's trying to figure out her vagina, mm-hmm. what she's trying to figure out is how to follow a sensation, right? To notice the sensation inside of my body, which ones I want to pay attention to, how to grow them, how to invite my partner to help me grow them. And that's, that's a very different way of doing it than like checking these behaviors off list. Like we did this, we did 69, we did yeah. this, like that matters mm-hmm. less than being able to be like, I really want to have this situation where we're each kind of just playing with what feels good and how to grow that, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's like exactly, I mean, that is kind of what we said in there. So I'm glad that that's validated, but it was around like, what is going to work for you? Like what is going to make you feel good about yourself and your sexuality? And I think there's so much of this emphasis of like date one, date three, and like all of that really is arbitrary. And I love this idea of like, what is comfortable for me, not what do I think this person is going to think of me because of this? Well, I want to add one thing, which is, you know, this whole thing about like, which date it's on kind of also means if we're focusing on that, then we aren't talking about the fact that sometimes first sexual experiences with with a new partner suck, not because they're a quote unquote bad lover, but because we have to like kind of feel our way into each other, right? We have to, Mm -hmm. we have to establish like a rhythm and a flow and a chemistry 
in a dynamic. So I think sometimes that's a that's a challenge in the dating world is that they rule out a potential partner because the first sex is and and lousy is on a spectrum, right? So like right. we shouldn't go back for really lousy sex. But sometimes it may just be that everyone's feeling a little awkward and you know it takes a while to establish like this base of trust that helps us take risks. Yeah, I think it's it goes into this idea of sex is not just a one-time act. It's a it's a opening for communication. It's almost like when you first say hello to someone on the phone and then you continue that conversation and you let that conversation evolve. And I think what we talked about in this discussion and what was really alarming to me about this question was we are not owning our own narratives. I think by her asking this question, mm-hmm. Is it okay to sleep with someone on first date? Her narrative was already, if I sleep with someone on the first date, Mm -hmm. they won't take me seriously. Right. So how do we get that back and say, I'm going to change the narrative because I'm going to change the way people have told me about sleeping with someone too fast because that's not what I'm trying to own here. Right. And like, why is it like a power dynamic? Because I think that's really the root of what you're saying too, is like the way it's being viewed is I'm giving away something. Right. Opposed Mm -hmm. to sharing a mutual beneficial experience that's going to bring me closer to a partner and make me connect with someone. Right. And the reality is that that a man wouldn't ask that question in the same way around what is she going to think of me if I sleep with her on the first date. Mm -hmm. And then that means that it means that a man is then cut off from his 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 storyline. The storyline he's been told is like, you just have to figure out how far you can get. Right. That that's the idea that you're the pursuer and she's the gatekeeper. And so you just kind of go go until you're told not to go. It's a ridiculous message to give men. And it cuts them off from being able to ask that question of themselves. Like, what do I really want and need in a sexual experience? And I had um, a good friend of mine was talking about like when he was in the sort of hookup world, he was really struggling with like erectile function. Like he did not, it was really hard for him to get and maintain an erection in these kind of random hookups. And he felt a lot of shame about that. And he said, I had this moment where I realized that my penis and my heart are connected. What the hell is wrong with our culture that like yeah. you have to be a 27-year-old man who's, you know, before you realize that your penis and your heart are connected? Like, we aren't giving boys this message, you no. know, that they deserve to really go slowly and take their time and figure out what they want and need and what makes them feel good because we bombard them with, they get bombarded with this message that their value as a man is about how far they can get with a woman. It's just, it's just disgusting and awful. You know, I, over uh, New Year's Eve, I sat with a group of men. We just ended up hanging out and talking about sex. And Mm. this question came up and I was the only girl in the group. And the question was, what do you think when a girl sleep with you on the first date? And all the guys across the board said, I wouldn't like it. I would assume she did this with all the other men. I would think that she was easy. And I would think that she didn't take us seriously. So we went in a little bit deeper and we carried on the conversation a little bit longer saying, because I asked him, what is you sleeping with a girl on the first date saying about you? And at the end, the result of this conversation was many of them actually felt that if a girl sleeps with me on the first date, it would mean I would have to perform at a level that would compete with all the other men she's been oh, with. Oh, so it became more about them than her. It did. So interesting. I don't oh, want to be the loser yeah. in this situation. So I rather remove myself from this race. Interesting. (laughs) That is really fascinating. The fact that they put that into voice in a space with each other and with you is huge Huge. because you're right. It's so 
easy to deflect it onto her and what's wrong with her. And you invited them to peel back a layer and look at what is it like for you to enter that space with somebody right off the bat. And what you found is there's a shit ton of vulnerability there. So yeah. much. And, and for crazy. men, and, and, if, and we need to move towards a world where men can talk about that with each other. And that like, that just is so detoxifying. That gives me chills. It's what a beautiful, what a beautiful opportunity they had to maybe say something out loud that they had not you know, said before or put together. That's huge. Yeah. And so I ended up sending them an invoice for $250 because I was like, you're welcome. But they're like, I wasn't expecting this on New Year's Eve. But the question now is, I love you like, where are the cameras? This where is the ca- really yeah. good stuff. This is great. But what, how can we change the conversation? Yeah. What are some tools we can use now that we can just start today? Well, one thing I think about a lot is just like parents with kids, right? Because at some point we have to just break the cycle and, you know, because parents do to their kids what was done to them around talking about sex in these very like, you know, binary, do this, don't do this kinds of terms. So that that's a huge thing. I think is just like, you know, breaking the big chain around like the generation to generation. But um, what can we do? I think a really important thing for women to do is if women haven't like explored um, masturbation, if they don't feel mm. like they feel comfortable with their bodies, like like that whole work on my entire relationship to pleasure. Do I have? Do I give myself permission to have pleasure? Do I? What kind of touch do I like? How do I explore? Like relate to sort of like physical delight and touch and that oftentimes has to be she has to oftentimes especially if she's straight she has to do some of that work just in a room by herself because as soon as she's in a space with a male partner all of the stuff about you know whatever performance or even if even if he's a partner who's deeply invested in her feeling good there's a weird way that that can end up feeling like pressure right because now Mm -hmm. she needs to feel good in order to make him feel good Mm -hmm. that he made her feel good So it ends up being this like double loop. Mm. So I think a lot of this work has to be just a woman in a room by herself with a candle, some soft music and just (laughs) kind of present with herself, you know? (laughs) So we've talked a lot about like the shame end of all of this, but what about just like now that you understand your sexual self and your partner and you have totally different sexual like like needs and desires? Like for example, let's say like one one person is really into kink and the other is more vanilla. Like, is that relationship doomed? Can they work together? Right. I mean, I think it would probably depend on like how far on the extremes they each are. I think there is a way that when we when we commit to, especially when we're committing to something that's sexually monogamous, if this is not a sexually monogamous situation, then maybe they agree that like there are limits to my curiosity and willingness around kink. And so those are the parts of yourself that you take elsewhere. But for a couple that really wants to be sexually monogamous, there's this like both and of the vanilla partner finding sort of their growing edges and how they can expand in ways that feel good to them and that feel like they're in the service of their relationship. And then they're on the on the kink partner side, there probably is a, you know, a bit of grief. Like I think that whatever we, whatever we choose, whatever we choose in our life inevitably involves a letting go or a grieving. So the partner who, you know, who enjoys kink, but really wants to be with this person who's a bit more vanilla, I think there probably is some grieving and letting go of the life they aren't going to live because they didn't choose somebody who's as deeply into kink as they are. And I think that's, um, there's an inevitability around grief and letting go that's different than 
resentment, you know, this sort of like surrender versus like resentment about it. Like I can't have this part. Well, Mm -hmm. if we're going to focus on what we can't have, then we're not going to be cultivating what we actually can have. And the more we're willing to cultivate like what we can have, what our partner is available for, then that may lead to some more expansion and it will help us like sort of feel grateful rather than deprived. Got it. What about like when one partner is like always in the mood and the other feels <laughs> like they're like initiating and getting re- not returned? Yes. That is one of the most common sexual problems is the desire difference. Makes total sense because the chances that two people are going to be <laughs> in the mood at the same amount at the same time at the same frequency is like impossible. impossible. That's impossible. So I think there's an inevitability in a sexually monogamous relationship relationship, a long-term one, it's inevitable that couples are going to hit that bump in the road around desire difference. What happens is that it becomes this huge problem because we get locked into blame and shame. So the higher desire partner either feels ashamed of their desire or they feel blaming, like the other person never wants it. And why do I always have to be the one? So there's like that sort of blame and shame possible on the higher desire partner side of the street. And then on the lower desire partner side of the street, they can also feel shame. What's wrong with me? Why don't I want it more? Or they can feel blame. Like this is ridiculous. You're so demanding. It's like one more thing on my to-do list. And so when we get into that like narrative of like, it's either my fault or your fault, then the problem itself actually grows. Like the distance between them ends up growing Mm. versus looking at it like what, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder, like what are we as a couple going to do? Like looking together. The problem Mm -hmm. is we'd like different frequencies. Like what are we as a couple? How are we going to relate to this challenge of desire difference? Like that's an entirely different positionality that opens up new possibilities for how you navigate that. But we, we can't even get to that place of a collaborative approach to like, huh, what are we going to, how are we going to navigate this? Because what I want and what you want are not the same thing. We can't even get there if we're stuck as, as often as the case with sex, if we're stuck in shame or we're stuck in judgment. I have a very specific question about this though. Logistically, when is the best time to talk about mm. sex with your partner in a way that's trying to improve your sex life? Let's take a break now for our wonderful partner, Generation Tux. All you guys out there, have you ever found yourself needing a tux but didn't want to spend the time and effort finding the right fit listen we've talked to enough grooms to know there is so much to do right before a wedding that your tux is the last thing you want to worry about now with generation tux you no longer have to think too much about your tux for the big day you simply create your look online including your groom's party and everything arrives at your doorstep 14 days before the big day you can even earn a free suit or tuxedo rental with five paid members or better yet keep your suit or tux when seven members check out. Generation Tux offers a free home try-on program for grooms. And after the big event, you throw everything back in the box and use the prepaid label to drop off that UPS. Free shipping, free swatches, and free home try-on. Now you can save time and money with Generation Tux. Check out generationtux.com slash datable and use the promo code datable for 10% off your entire groom's party. Again, that's generationtux.com slash datable and check out with the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E. Now back to this episode. When is the best time to talk about Mm. sex with your partner in a way that's trying to improve your sex life? Because I found Mm -hmm. post-coital it does not work. It just yeah. right afterwards, you're tired. Maybe your mind is in a haze. And then once that that desire passes, you wanting to have this conversation is not as much. And mm-hmm. then it's like right before you're not going to have this conversation right when you're about to take your clothes off. 
So right. when is the right time? <laughs> I know, That's a great question. I know I spend some time in the book talking about talking about sex, you know, yeah, because that, because that very thing, I, I think couples have to figure out what works for them. Sometimes we come up with all these excuses about when it's not the right time because we're anxious, you know, like, yeah. So if that's what's happening, the thing to really address is the anxiety. And so what can we do to have this conversation in a bit of a less intense way versus like, versus like, we're like staring at each other. And so it may be, you know, that it's done uh, via email. Uh, my friend Esther Perel has this suggestion she uses with couples where couples just open a separate email account that is just for, you know, conversations about Whoa. love and intimacy, like no logistics, you know, no wow. like, pragmatics. And so then it's like, it's basically like love letters back and forth. And that way each person can really like savor what the person, what their partner is saying and may have some time to like feel a bit less defensive. Sometimes in conversation, we can get really defensive really quickly and hear our partners as more critical than they actually are. Mm. So letter writing or email exchanging can slow things down. So I like that intervention a lot. We had a couple that came on our show that did sex journaling. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a similar concept. It's like, let me express how I'm feeling and let's share it in like an open space together. Lavina and Caleb. Yep, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I know. I love I, I love their, I'm looking at it right now. It's right here in my office. I love their sex journal. And it is, um, right, similarly, like a neutral space that we both can go to. I This is one of the big, big reasons. You know, I'm not a formally trained sex therapist, but I am a couples therapist who realizes how much I need to be making space in my therapy office to support conversations about sex. And there's been this weird split within the world of relationship therapy where there are sex therapists over there and they Mm. have their own conferences and do their own thing. And then the couples therapists are over here and we have our own conferences and we do our own thing. And there's kind of the split. So it is, it is very likely that a couple will come into a couples therapist office and the couples therapist isn't asking them directly about sex. And so then it's like, even in a couples therapy office, it feels like this topic is taboo. And so I was really motivated to just kind of like invite a bit more curiosity and collaboration from the couples therapist part of the world to just be proactive about making space in their therapy offices to talk about sex. Even if they aren't formally trained as sex therapists, there are still lots of conversations that can be had if there are, you know, significant sexual problems, then certainly they need to be referred out. But there's a lot that couples therapists can actually do to show and model that this is something that can be talked about. So another thing for couples to do is just talk about it in therapy. And I think part of the problem with couples therapy is people are like, oh my God, something's wrong with us if we're in couples therapy. But in fact, it just shows that your relationship means so much to you that you are investing time each week to have important conversations in a supported way. So- I like that idea too. That's so fascinating because I think it's so interesting that they're so decoupled. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to, again, how sex is viewed as shameful and like how mm-hmm. you it's not always something you want to talk about. Like I even know I had a friend recently, not that I'm a sex therapist or a therapist. You're not. <laughs> I had a friend like <laughs> asked me about or just like come to me around advice with um, a relationship she was in. And it took me probably like halfway through our conversation to just even bring up like, how is your sex life? Mm. And I don't know why Mm -hmm. that wasn't like an immediate question because I think a lot of times sex is a barometer of the whole relationship. Mm. But it took me, I just couldn't like bring myself to ask it for whatever reason. 
Mm-hmm. Well, because we think yep. of sex as being behind closed doors. It's yeah. always like, oh, whatever you do behind closed doors is none of my business. But is it productive to have a culture where we openly talk about sex even when we meet up for brunch? Is it like, hey, Julie, yeah. how was Friday night? How's your sex life? Like, <laughs> is that the goal mm-hmm. we're trying to get to? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, what is the culture? What's good for our culture? Yeah, what could it look like? Right. I know it's funny because in some ways we're talking about sex so much. Like part of what it is to live in the era of Me Too is that we are really looking at all of the incredibly problematic, dangerous, power-driven, horrible things that happen around sex. And so I wonder about in some about balancing it out with a willingness to talk about actually people's just what's really delightful about people's sex lives. Like I love that idea of opening up, right? Maybe not just like, you know a ton of space for like nitty gritty details about (laughs) how you performed oral sex on your partner, but just to kind of like name it as a part of life that's actually going well or a part of life that is, you know, fun. Like there's something about like how much this, the Me Too era is vitally, vitally important, right? It is like so time to unpack and like pull back the curtain on all the abuse that has happened. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like, there's more than just healing. Like we have to heal trauma, but, but part of how we heal trauma is by saying that actually we deserve pleasure and we deserve to live as sex is an integrated part of who we are. Part of why I like the idea of like a bit more <laughs> brunch conversation about yeah. sex, because then it's like a reminder of like, oh yeah, sex is more than just this incredibly fraught, problematic realm. Yeah, I think that's interesting because Me Too, it's definitely a chance to go there now. But I feel like when Me Too first came out, it was about like sex as abusers or sex Mm -hmm. as a victim. And it was kind of actually playing into the shame model even more Mm -hmm. in a way. And I think it will be interesting to see if now post Me Too, we can get to a place where it's just openly discussed as pleasurable. That's what we were just saying. Right. Mm -hmm. And what about this mentality of constant comparisons? Mm. We have guests on the show who would say, I haven't had the number of partners that I should be having at this age. Or couples who say, oh, this uh, our neighbors, they say they have sex five days a week and we only have sex one day a month. Are we doing something wrong? How do we get around this whole keeping up the Joneses? It is so funny when you even look at like the sort of the history of sex research in our field, when researchers ask uh, about sex, what they oftentimes will say is like, how often do you have sex? And so it's like, there's ways that like the field of sex research has reinforced this idea that quantity equals quality, you know, or that quantity is the main thing. And I think that's whenever, like, it's just numbers are a really easy place for us to put our obsessiveness, you know, whether it's numbers on a scale or numbers of, you know, episode downloads or books sold or whatever, like we can just numbers do end up hooking us in a bit. And so I think the most important thing is just noticing how, right, there's a number, I've had X partners, they have sex X number of times a week, like noticing how we will take that number and attach an entire story that has to do with worth and value to that number versus just dropping the story and having it and just noticing it as a piece of data and figuring out what's a more interesting question to ask. So with the, you know, the neighbors down the street are having sex five times a week, a more interesting question is like, what are you seeking in sex? Like, what do you find there? What does it do for your relationship? 
And then those same questions for oneself, like why, you know, what, what am I looking for when I want sex with my partner? What am I craving? What am I seeking to express? Those are so much more interesting questions than how many times. Yeah. No, it's a great you sex five times a week and it, and it does nothing for your relationship right. because it's just right. performing a duty or you can <laughs> yep. have sex one time a week and it's right. incredibly restorative, you know, and connects you and, and you get to like kind of bask in that glow for the rest of the week. Quality mm-hmm. over quantity. Exactly. So I guess like to, before we go into takeaways, like what are a couple words of wisdom that you would give to anyone who is better trying to understand their sexual self and like kind of create this sex life that you always wanted? Um, words of wisdom would be, I guess the most important thing is to just, within any couple, there are three sexualities. There's my sexuality, there's your sexuality, and there's our sexuality. Hmm. Being able to remember that because because of the risk of saying like somehow I'm broken or something's wrong with me. Like that, the pull is to go in that direction or to go in the direction of like something's wrong with my partner. My partner isn't, or my partner is too much. And so to always come back, like notice when we start to do that and then come back to that idea of like, there's my sexuality, there's your sexuality, and then there's our sexuality. And so just remembering always to like thicken up the story because when it gets, when the story becomes too thin, that's when the silence sets in. Because if I get convinced that something's wrong with me, mm-hmm. then there's sure as shit no way I'm going to bring up a problem I'm having or a concern I have because I'm just either going to be really scared that you're also going to start blaming me or I can't even imagine bringing it up because I'm too ashamed of myself. And, you know, that's what shame does is it silences us. It makes us think that we're the only one that feels this way. Hmm. I love that. I love like, I mean, we've talked about this with relationships before. Mm-hmm. It's not me versus you. It's us. Right. So it's similar, but it's just putting mm-hmm. sex, which is something that's even harder sometimes to talk about. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. So what are some of your takeaways? Let's go into takeaways. Mine? Yeah, we'll start with you. <laughs> I was just thinking about how, if you think about it, sex is a form of self-care. Mm. And it's kind of like doing your monthly massage appointment. Why wouldn't you do your daily massage appointment with your private parts? right? Because you have (laughs) access to do that. So it's kind of like booking a a massage for one or a massage for two or however many. But if we see it as a way of self-care, then we're able to go into it with more empathy. Mm, I like that. that. Mm. I'm just trying to find pleasure, to restore myself, to find balance. And I want to also create that for whoever's involved in this experience as well. So let's find pleasure together. And I love this idea of quantity is never a way to measure, are you getting pleasure? Yeah. So I think a constant Mm -hmm. question of uh, how do I feel after this? Am I feeling good about myself? Am I Am I caring for myself? Am I caring for my partner? That's a better measure of whether you're you're getting that pleasure that you've been seeking. So I really love, I'm just going to book this daily uh, massage appointment. With the magic wand? No, not with the magic wand. That's for massaging outer parts. But for my inner parts, I'm going to book a daily massage appointment. And sometimes someone could join and sometimes they may not. I want to piggyback on one, one thing about that. I think it's so, when, when I think about, especially women in the dating world, I, so you guys know who Mama Gina is? So I love, I think it was a newsletter or something. She wrote about how she 
masturbates before she goes on a first date because she wants to feel really grounded, really nourished, really full within herself Mm. when she shows up on a first date rather than feeling like she needs she needs this mm-hmm. person to scratch this itch inside of her or she's yearning for something that somebody else has to give to her. Mm. So for her, it like anchors her back within herself that then, right, she is her own source of pleasure. And then she may invite somebody else into that space with her, but she comes into it then from a place of wholeness instead of lack. And I love that, what you're mm. it really amplifying you know, goes along with what you're saying. I love that too, because I feel like we've been taught sexuality is two people. Mm-hmm. And it, like, if you don't have a partner, sometimes you're like, I can't continue to explore my sexuality. And you feel deprived. Right. And that's mm-hmm. when you like end up having like the friends with benefits or like someone hooking mm-hmm. up with just someone that you're not really into and attracted to. Mm-hmm. And it's more of this place of desperation, which is what we yes. were talking about. And I love this mm-hmm. like, takeaway of kind of it's evolving your sexuality is evolving and it's not something that you learned in sex ed it's not something that you had as your first experience in college that might not have gone so well like it continues to go and you continue to see what works for you what works for your partner learn and evolve it's just Mm -hmm. like a continuous cycle it's not a one time this is what i know this is what ends and stay curious in that. Yeah, How, stay curious. Why did for I sure. feel this way? Why do I like this? And keep on exploring because I realize with the human body, there's so much more we haven't uncovered. Right. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. too, that goes into like sex acts like that aren't kind of the standard. Like if someone does mm-hmm. bring something up to you that might be different than you've ever experienced, then it's that staying open. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it, I mean, obviously don't try something that's so against your morals and not something that you want to do. But if it's something that you're just like, I don't know if I'd like, maybe there is a benefit of trying it, seeing how you feel, Mm -hmm. seeing what it does to your sexy. And if it's good, keep going. And if it's not, then you know. Mm -hmm. Part of what happens in a couple system is it feels so much like the only way I can experience my sexuality is through sex with you. And so then it does make this idea that sex is a duty because because you're only going to meet that need if I show up and, you know, it adds a bit of breath and space if I don't feel solely responsible for creating um, the conditions for you to experience your sexuality, you know? Mm. So couples where they, where there is just some space for that as well can take this heavy responsibility of like, my partner wants sex. I'm the only person they have sex with. I have to show up. It has to be me that then just creates the conditions for duty. And that, you know, duty definitely is pretty antithetical to desire. That's so interesting because I feel like that's where things are going, like um, singular pleasure, right? But then Mm. also like polyamory and other configurations because I'm thinking of like, I don't know why this one sticks out, but sex in the city Mm -hmm. when like Charlotte and Trey weren't having sex and then Mm -hmm. she caught him masturbating and it was like the ultimate betrayal. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about masturbating historically that's made you feel like you're not up to speed. Right. And if they're masturbating, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. But I think what I'm getting from this conversation is it's not a comparison. It's like apples to oranges. Like just because you're masturbating doesn't mean that you don't have a sex life that you love. It's right. just complimentary. It doesn't need to be an and or. 
So next time someone asks you, how's your sex life? You can say, oh, I am really good in bed <laughs> with myself. Right. Because I think like, yeah, historically you would think like, I'm only going to say it if I have a partner right, right now. And if I don't have a partner, my sex life is bad. Which is not true. Right. You could be having a banging sex life. You could be. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who is having a banging sex life? I don't know if you heard about this, Alexandra, but in San Francisco a couple months ago, the police broke up an epic sex party in the Presidio with over 100 people, they found 50 gallons of semen oh and uh, donkeys, llamas, and emus running around, and they arrested like 80 people running out of this oh, place. Oh, my gosh. Wow. They are really exploring their sexuality. Yeah. Good for them. Wow. Maybe yeah. some of it is a little illegal. Oh, my gosh. I think my <laughs> other takeaway from this conversation is like, don't take everything so personally. Yeah. Like, I love this whole thing that we were talking about earlier, like... You're, if you want to have sex and your partner doesn't, and historically you'd be like, oh, there's something wrong with me. They're not attracted mm. to me. But it really has nothing to do with you. It's about them and their sexuality. And then, like, I loved what you said about how do you just make it my sexuality, your sexuality, and our sexuality. Our sexuality. Yes, and own it that way. Alexandra, any other last words of wisdom for our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> Gosh, I... Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about, about shame and the stories we attach. And so then, like, the antidote is, is self-compassion, right? Like, just being really self-compassionate. I wouldn't say for women, but I think it's for men as well, because it's just, I think maybe worries are different. But I think we're all really hard on our bodies, you know? Very critical of my breasts are to this, my penis is to this, my hips are to this. Like, we get very critical of how our bodies look and sound and, you know, all of this narrative that operates in the background that is I'm not enough or I'm wrong that compromises pleasure. So the, the woman who wrote the foreword to Taking Sexy Back is this researcher in Canada named Dr. Lori Brado. And her recent book is called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And she basically took this finding that has stood up in a variety of studies that about half of women struggle with um, low sexual desire. So it's like kind of... Um, you know, in terms of like normal being defined as incredibly common, it's become sort of normal for women to struggle with low sexual desire, especially women who are in, you know, longer term partnered relationships. And she was like, all right, this is not okay. What's going on here? And what she found was that when you teach women mindfulness skills, like basically dropping the self-critical story about my thighs and just returning to the moment, it changes their sex lives like mm. massively and um, and women experience more desire, more arousal, more lubrication, more orgasm, um, more connection with their partners. But I think sometimes we don't even know how not mindful we are because we're just so used to being self-critical yeah. that it just feels like we don't even know that tape is playing mm -hmm. inside of our heads when we're making love. Mm -hmm. It just feels like this is how I always am. I grew up as a woman. So of course I'm beating the crap out of my body. Like it's just what I do all the time. But I want women to really know that that a space to meet ourselves with deep, deep, deep compassion that um, like criticism blocks our ability to even feel good, right? To feel pleasure, to feel deserving. And so noticing how those stories are coming up is a first step towards like, no, I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to return, just drop the story and return my attention to this moment. I yeah. love that. I love that because it's so, <laughs> yeah, so dead on for so many of us. I think mm -hmm. most women and men 
everyone can relate to having those critical moments in their own mind that are really getting away from having the sex life that they deserve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In addition to showing up for your partner, show up for yourself too. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think this conversation has been so great. So thanks again for having it. I think what's interesting to me too is it's applicable for people that are single, applicable for people that have been in relationships for years. Everyone kind of deals with this ongoing evolution of sexuality. It's not just, oh, you're in a relationship, your sex life is great. Oh, you're single, your sex life is bad. Like it's just, it's not black and white. I mean, one of the things that was so amazing about writing this book was that I had this amazing team of graduate students and undergraduate students, and we were really diverse, like very different ages, very different relationship stages, very different cultural backgrounds and cultural trainings, all the way from, you know, very liberal um, people to people who had been raised in strict Catholic families. Like it was a really fascinating team. And so the conversations we would have was amazing how often we would come back to these same themes that transcended age, relationship stage, and culture. It was really enlightening. And I hope anybody who picks it up finds some source of comfort, relief, support, and courage, you know, in it. And that's exactly why everyone should pick up a copy of the book. Take <laughs> oh, yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> we're, um, I'm assuming on Amazon you can get it. Where else can you get the book? Yeah, I mean, wherever books are sold, your indie bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, definitely. It is um, paperback and Kindle, and it will pretty soon be available as an audiobook as well. Ooh, nice. And we'll link it in our show notes, yep. of, course, of course, for anyone interested. And Dr. Alexandra Solomon, we need to come to one of your classes. We've been saying this for a while, but we will show up at Northwestern one of these days. We're just going to be in the back taking notes rigorously. Surprise! We're here! We'll record I would love it. I would love to have you it's there. definitely going to happen because we are soulmates on so many different levels. <laughs> love nerds. All of us are love nerds. Love nerds. Thank yes. you so much for coming back on our show. We didn't scare you the first time. That's good to know. And thank you for bringing this uh, very basic Justin Timberlake song to a whole new level that's much deeper <laughs> and meaningful for all of us and it's better for the next generation that next time they hear this song they're like yes taking um, sexy back fucking yeah. taking my sexy back that's right watch out world thank you so much again for being on our show and uh, we are going to show up one of these days like, we are literally physically showing up to one of your classes <laughs> alright we're going to wrap this up Stay Datable. The Datable Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Want to continue the conversation? First, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at Datable Podcast. Tag us in any post with the hashtag Stay Datable and trust us, we look at all of those posts. Then head over to our website, datablepodcast.com. There you'll find all the episodes as well as articles, videos, and our coaching service with vetted industry experts. You can also find our premium Y series where we dissect, analyze, and offer solutions to some of the most common dating conundrums. We're also downloadable for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher Radio, and other podcast platforms. Your feedback is valuable to us, so don't forget to leave us a review. And most importantly, remember to stay datable. Mm-hmm.